there are over 500 animals on Canada's list of wildlife species at risk. One of these is Ursos arctos, the grizzly bear. I sang all night, the moon shone on me through the trees. My name is Sean Willett. This is The Red List. No brothers left, and there'll be no more after me. Picture a grizzly bear. For most people, this shouldn't be hard. They're icons, one of the world's biggest carnivores, brown, fuzzy, and about as majestic as an animal can be. Have you got an image of a grizzly in your head now? Good. Now I want you to expand that image. What is the bear doing? If it's eating, what is it eating? Where is it standing? What sort of world surrounds it? Picture your bear in the habitat you think suits it best. What do you see? For most, the bear will be roaming an alpine meadow, high in the Rockies. For others, it will be wading through a stream in British Columbia, hunting for salmon. For a few, it might even be wandering the forests of Alaska. But that's about it. Because, well... Those are the places almost all grizzlies live. But this wasn't always the case. Like most other animals, the grizzly bears we see today and the places we see them in represent only a sliver of what they once were. A fraction of their full potential. A potential we can help them reach again. There are still some grizzlies that live beyond the mountains and forests we imagine them to inhabit. These are known as the barren ground grizzlies. Which is the grizzly bear populations that are north of the tree line in the Canadian Arctic and Southern Arctic area. That was Tyler Jessen, a researcher at the University of Calgary that studies the barren ground grizzlies. I'm a graduate student at the University of Calgary in the Department of Ecosystem and Public Health. Tyler is studying how these bears survive in this inhospitable environment and how their feeding habits differ from grizzlies living further south. When people typically think grizzly bears, they might think, you know, berries and salmon and, you know, um, uh, living on the, the Alaskan rivers. It's not quite the same with grizzly bears in this tundra area. There, there's a much lower biomass of food available to the grizzly bears in that area. With less food available, the barren ground grizzlies have had to adapt, finding different ways to get the huge amounts of food that they need. They feed on what can roughly be categorized into, into sort of three groups, either grasses, berries, or protein. Primarily, the barren ground caribou, that's their, their main source of, of protein. They will actually run down individual caribou. They will chase wolves off of caribou carcasses. Um, They're also known to feed on musk oxen. But the tundra is far from being a reliable source of sustenance. At latitudes that extreme, food is highly seasonal, with different sources of food only being available at certain times of year. 
While this can make the tundra impossible to inhabit for most animals, this is just another fact of life for the barren grounds grizzlies. All grizzly bears are somewhat adapted to the, the seasonal availability of food sources. Grizzly bears have a very high demand for calories because they, they hibernate, they have, you know, they're large-bodied mammals, so they require a lot of food. And they're really good, for the most part, at getting that food. And so the grizzly bears up north are, are adapted to that, those uh, very high peaks in, and lows in the different food availability that is in the tundra. The way that I generally describe grizzly bears, at least as hunters and foragers, is that, you know, they, they will do what they need to do to survive. And that is a thought that's echoed, I think, by a lot of the aboriginal hunters in the area. The grizzly bear is oftentimes referred to as a very resilient, very strong individual that is able to do what it needs to do to survive. But they can't survive everything. Human-caused global warming has been changing the tundra, and changing the patterns of life and death that the barren grounds grizzlies have come to rely on. What we're seeing is, is a, a shifting in the timing of the availability of these food sources. So especially in the northern regions, which are warming much faster than the, the global average, what we're seeing is that, is that the sort of peak availability of these different crops of foods is arriving at different times for the grizzly bears, um, and really for all the, the uh, animals that live in that area. And so this is known as trophic mismatch, which is a concept wherein the phenology of food availability is sort of decoupled or is not synced up with the biology and behavior of the animals that inhabit that area. The idea is that most animals are capable of adapting to a certain amount of environmental change. But the change that we're seeing right now is quite rapid, and it can end up having demographic effects. That is, it can have an effect on population size if it's severe enough. And it's especially concentrated in cubs and those young grizzly bears that require a lot of food at, at those specific times. And when they don't get that, they can end up starving. If the tundra continues to change at the rate that it is changing, the barren ground grizzlies might disappear. These bears, these survivors who boldly live outside of our preconceived notions of what grizzlies can be, might finally be broken. And grizzlies will truly be confined to the narrow slice of country we have placed them in. The mountains, the forests, the salmon-filled streams. Of course, you are probably asking, if this is what grizzlies are now, then what did they used to be? This was exactly the question asked by J.B. McKinnon, the author of The 100-Mile Diet and The Once in Future World. McKinnon has always had a fascination with grizzly bears. Yeah, I think they symbolized the real wild to me. I mean, as a child, I, was, I had the good fortune to be able to walk out my back door and out onto the grasslands. That really left me deeply interested in nature and in you know the wilder side of the landscape. And for me, the places that had grizzly bears were the wildest places. You know, the presence of grizzly bears symbolized wilderness to me in a lot of ways. 
and it didn't help that McKinnon's mom was sort of irrationally afraid of grizzly bears. And I, I think also the attraction repulsion of having been raised afraid of bears made them something that I wanted to see and, and, and confront and experience in some way. Yet, despite this fascination, there were no grizzly bears anywhere near McKinnon's childhood home. Uh, I mean, I, I grew up in British Columbia, so I did have the opportunity to see bears from time to time. But on the, in the area that I grew up in, which was the area around Kamloops, British Columbia, you know, bears were considered an animal of far away and distant places for the most, especially grizzly bears. There were black bears in the general area, uh, but grizzly bears were almost mythical beasts of faraway lands. And the biggest kind of carnivore-type animal that I might have bumped into around Kamloops was maybe a fox or a coyote. But this wasn't always the case. While conducting research for the Once and Future World, McKinnon discovered something completely unexpected. One of the surprises that came out of my research, in fact, the research that launched the book, The Once and Future World, was the discovery that grizzly bears used to live on the landscape I'd grown up on. And, I mean, this was an absolute surprise to me. I hadn't, I hadn't heard anybody mention the past presence of grizzly bears in my growing up years at all. Uh, and so when I found out that they had been there in the past, I really became fascinated with what it would be like to see a grizzly bear on that kind of a landscape. This was surprising because the area McKinnon grew up in was nothing like the environments where modern-day grizzly bears live. A scrubland, a grass, you know, a grassland with big sage plants and things like that around. But yeah, it, it's it's really what most of us would think of as as the backdrop to a western film, you know, that that kind of a landscape. And I think most of us when we picture grizzly bears, we picture them in high mountain landscapes or far northern landscapes, we don't really picture them as, as animals of the grasslands. But as strange as it is to imagine, they were animals of the grasslands. At home in the rolling plains of the center of North America. They're iconic animals, but we picture that iconography in these cold, wild landscapes when it turned out that they lived not only all throughout British Columbia and all of its many different kinds of landscapes, but also all the way down into Mexico, all the way across Canada, uh, at least as far as eastern Saskatchewan, and on the uh, barren land of Labrador and Ngava Peninsula type area as well. So, I mean, they're, they're a terrific example of a species that has lost you know, much of its historical range and has ended up being perceived very differently by us because of that. As McKinnon says, grizzly bears used to be everywhere, living not only in the mountains, but in plains and grasslands, foothills and deserts. These bears live much like the barren grounds grizzlies do today, taking advantage of seasonal bounties and hunting bison instead of caribou. It makes sense, after all. If grizzlies can live in a place as inhospitable as the Yukon tundra, well, then where couldn't they live? This was that full potential I was talking about earlier. A world where grizzly bears could be all that they could be, could live in all the places they can live. But this was a world that was taken from them. Even though the grizzlies 
could live in the plains, even though they did live in the plains, they don't anymore. Canada's list of wildlife species at risk marks the grizzly bear as extirpated from the plains. In other words, they have been completely wiped out. And you can probably guess who's to blame. Uh, I think a constellation of factors, but all of them essentially come down to human activity. Either they were hunted out or they were driven to the west as the prairies were settled by mainly European colonists. The food source was gone. The land was being used in a completely different way. And clearly they weren't welcome. They were seen as enemies. As the Europeans began to settle the land and cull the once omnipresent bison herds, Plains grizzlies started running out of their normal sources of food and were forced to find new ways to survive. This, of course, only created more conflict. With the bison gone, they would be prone to feed on livestock or they would be prone to feed on crops. And, uh, and of course, none of those sat well with pioneering farmers and ranchers. And although the grizzlies are survivors, even though they can adapt to almost everything, we proved to be the storm that was too much for them to weather. You know, so as we converted all of their habitat into farms and ranch lands and, and oil fields and, and so on, and as they were actively hunted, uh, they eventually just utterly disappeared from the Canadian prairies and from so many other areas as well. Throughout the United States, they lost 98% of their range. So we were left with them in, in the wildest and most hard-to-reach parts of North America. And, and this is true even in Europe, where the brown bear, which is genetically very similar to the, to the grizzly bear, the brown bear is now found only in really the most difficult-to-reach parts of European mountain ranges. And, and again, in, in uh, historical times, they were widespread throughout Europe and even into northern Africa. Grizzly bears are now completely gone from most of their former range, trapped in a fragment of what they could be. But they don't have to stay that way. The world doesn't have to stay this way. This is where the concept of rewilding comes in. There's a number of different definitions of rewilding out there, but to me, rewilding is simply the act of bringing back wild qualities to places where they've been lost. So from my perspective, that's something that can happen at almost any scale, from putting out milkweed for monarch butterflies to feed on in your backyard, through to establishing corridors of wilderness that span continents. I mean, and to me, any of those things are rewilding. Contrary to popular belief, rewilding is not just an attempt to return the world to the way things used to be. In fact, McKinnon believes this line of thinking is almost useless. We have transformed landscapes in such dramatic ways that it's probably not even possible to return to some, certainly to some perfected vision from some specific point of time in the past. And just as one example, you know, we can look at the fact that here in British Columbia, there weren't any earthworms <laughs> at the time of European settlement. And there are now, uh, as I understand it, about 20 different species of earthworm. You know, that gives you a sense of just how incredibly difficult it would be to, to try to achieve some kind of perfect representation or recreation of past environments. And then, of course, you know, here we are caught up in the dynamics of climate change, where 
it may not even be possible for the environments we live in today to be remade into you know, some version of what they were in the past. I focus more on you know, what history tells us about what nature can be. And when we look at historical ecology, we see that the natural world used to be a place of much greater abundance uh, and much greater diversity over a far greater area than it is today. And I think we can take that as a, a guiding lesson in the kind of natural world that we want to surround ourselves with. To a large extent, this means creating and maintaining large contiguous protected areas like Banff National Park, where wildlife can live free of human contact. But I think rewilding becomes much more interesting when we're talking about what I think of as the humanized landscape, which is all of the area outside of the parks and how we can start to reintegrate human culture with nature across a much larger part of the earth. And the reason I think that's important is because if we look at the highest goals that have been set for setting aside land and sea in protected areas, the highest goal is aiming for 12% of the planet at this point in the, that would actually be set aside in protected areas. And that leaves us 88% of the planet to human uses. So if we don't start to reintegrate human culture into nature, then we're really just going to have you know, this terribly transformed and simplified ecosystem over most of the planet, which will be surrounding these small islands of protected space. Uh, and I don't even know that it's necessarily desirable to always be thinking that the only way that we can protect the natural world is to shunt it off into parks. I think there's something very desirable about the idea of saying, well, how can we make some of these human activities integrate more effectively into natural ecosystems? You know, can we do farming? Can we build cities? Can we carry out logging uh, in ways that aren't anywhere near as, as detrimental as they have been in the past? and that allows you know, the natural world to, to reach more of its potential. To McKinnon, that is the pinnacle of what rewilding should be. Working to help nature reach its full potential. And grizzly bears aren't currently living up to their full potential. So the question becomes, should we try to help bears become what they once were? Should we reintroduce grizzlies to the plains that they once inhabited? Plains that are now inhabited mainly by us? Well, it's a complicated question with a complicated answer. In terms of ecosystem health, Tyler says that bears would be beneficial, especially if reintroduced alongside bison herds. They're definitely a top-down force in that they can remove certain individuals from herds of herbivores or or what have you that can that can ultimately be beneficial for the ecosystem. They they also can serve as sort of ecosystem engineers because they're able to to modify their their environment in in certain ways when they dig and and you know when they den that combined with a variety of other effects such as you know excreting waste that has benefits on the uh, on the ecosystem even indirect effects it's been known that just even the the presence of predators in an area just sort of the the fear factor that can be instilled in herds of prey species can actually have an effect on their distribution in different areas. 
it, it's all it's all things that can that can be cumulative in in, in sort of influencing how how these these prey species react. I, I think that sometimes the the assumption could be that this is all you know bad stuff. I mean, because it, it it definitely sounds like you know the the grizzly bear might be the big bad guy around there. But ultimately, what this is is the natural functioning of the ecosystem. It's it's much more self-sustaining in this way. It reflects a sort of evolution on the the human perceptions of predators. In the past, for example, when the plains population of grizzly bears was around, predators were often seen as sort of a, a threat to ecosystems, a threat to biodiversity because they consumed animals. That was the, the thinking. And so removing them was seen as a benefit to humans because of the conflict between predators and humans. But it was also uh, sometimes seen as a, as a good thing for nature itself. And that perception has changed with advances in modern science and, and ecology. And we now recognize that predators can play a very important role in the healthy function of ecosystems. But while reintroduced grizzly bears would most likely benefit the environment, there is another side of this issue that manages to make ecosystem-scale ecology look like child's play. The question of rewilding, I think, comes down to a larger question about both the health of the ecosystem, right? Is it going to be healthy to reintroduce those predators? And also sort of the the human perceptions of the uh, predators in that area. Are we willing to live with predators in that area. And that right there is the biggest problem with reintroducing grizzly bears. A lot of people just don't want to live with grizzly bears. They're big, dangerous animals, and to someone who isn't used to big, dangerous animals, well, it can be hard to imagine living anywhere near them. I think most of what we've lost with the disappearance of the grizzlies is cultural. You know, I think we've lost that human connection to wildness that was much more widespread in the past than it is today. We've lost the understanding that we are able to live alongside big dangerous animals like the grizzly bear across much of the continent. And those are very, you know, those create terrific challenges for us today because attempts to reintroduce grizzly bears or areas where grizzly bear populations are recovering are, of course, real flashpoints for controversy among people today who, you know, having lived in the absence of an animal like the grizzly for so long, have no way of understanding that it is possible to live alongside them. But it is possible. In fact, it's already happened, not too far from where I'm recording this right now. I would point to southwestern Alberta, where at one point there was a review of the status of the plains grizzly bear on the Canadian prairies carried out by federal biologists. And they wrote up a report where they concluded that it was neither socially nor ecologically feasible for grizzlies to move back out onto the Canadian prairies. And then they started doing it. You know, in southwestern Alberta, the grizzlies themselves started moving out of the Rockies and out of the foothills and down into rangeland. So clearly, you know, the grizzlies had decided it was ecologically feasible. And, <laughs> and then there was a question about whether it was socially feasible. And the story so far is that despite tension and despite questions and concerns, the people who live and work and play 
in southwestern Alberta are tolerating the presence of the grizzlies and, you know, in some cases embracing that presence. There's a recognition in Canadian culture at some level that these species have as much right to the landscapes that they once lived on as we do, as many of us being the descendants of relative newcomers. That, to me, is, you know, is a very exciting story playing out down in southwestern Alberta and very different from, for example, the, the conflict in the United States around the advance of grizzlies into new territories where, you know, it's almost a part of this red state, blue state cultural rift that runs through the, the whole American consciousness with, you know, grizzly bears ridiculously <laughs> reduced to, to kind of a blue state liberal democratic symbol rather than just being, a, you know, another member of the global ecology. Not to brag, but us Canucks have actually been pretty good at accepting grizzly bears as members of our communities. Canada is starting to build examples of that. I mean, there is what's happening in southwestern Alberta, uh, but there was already the case of the towns of Banff and Canmore, which are very popular places, and and they're probably the largest centers of human habitation where people are in pretty close cheek-by-jowl proximity with grizzlies anywhere on Earth. I mean, again, I mean, there have been tensions over the years, and bears have been killed, and bears have killed humans, and, and so on. But for the most part, those interactions have evolved into bears that are learning to live alongside these human communities, and humans who not only tolerate the presence of the bears, but really embrace them and consider them part of their community identity, you know, which is really critically important. And we see that starting to happen in other places as well. I mean, grizzly bears are now living within about 50 kilometers as the crow flies from downtown Vancouver. <laughs> and uh, if they can continue to expand their range in uh, southwestern British Columbia, then Vancouver will soon be you know, the only large urban center in the world with a great, big, potentially dangerous predator on its doorstep. Cases like this, like Banff in southern Alberta, Give Tyler and other conservationists hope. Hope for a different kind of future. One where we use science and empathy hand in hand, learning to coexist with our new big furry neighbors. What gives me hope for this this sort of coexistence is because the general trend of people's attitudes towards predators has been slowly increasing over time. And that uh, goes along with not only advances in our understanding of their important role within ecosystems, but also in advancing the science of you know, managing human-predator conflict um, and reducing that conflict. It's very easy for you know, some city dweller like myself to say, I would like a predator on a landscape, but it's very different for the farmer or the rancher who actually lives in the area that might be grizzly bear habitat. But I would say overall, the, the general trend has been towards a more accepting view of that. And I think that it's, it's an evolving discussion, but I think it's one that ultimately could have a positive outcome. And this positive outcome will ultimately be a natural world that feels more full, more real. A feeling that McKinnon thinks is missing from much of our world today. It's often hard to kind of explain to people, well, you know, why would you want these things around you? Well, if you talk to the people who, who live near them, the reasons you want them around is because they introduce 
tremendous beauty and magic and powerful experiences to your life. I, I've had the, the good fortune to be able to travel into a, you know, a lot of different places around the world. And in a lot of places around the world, where, when you walk what's left of the wild landscape, there are no big predators present. And to me, those landscapes feel diminished compared to walking grizzly country in Canada, where just by virtue of the fact that you're aware that there is this big dangerous animal out there, you're kind of compelled to extend your senses out onto the landscape, not out of fear, although that's part of it for some of us, <laughs> but just because you know that you need that awareness to be a good neighbor, to be a you know a proper visitor to that kind of that kind of ecological situation, just those sorts of experiences, realizing that the presence of another animal can change the way that you walk and think and use your senses on the landscape, is something that most of us have forgotten. Because by helping bears and the rest of nature reach their full potential, by learning to live with these animals and be more conscious of the world we share with them we aren't just bettering the environment. Ultimately, we're also bettering ourselves. And that, that process of having to be conscious reminds you that you're part of an ecological community, that you're part of a community of species. And being reminded that you're part of a community of species makes you a better ecological citizen. It makes you somebody more willing and, in fact, actively desirous of living in, in a wilder world. And in a sense, having that exposure rewilds the human being, like it rewilds yourself and prepares you to live in a, in a wilder world alongside a greater diversity of species. And in that, I mean, there's just tremendous hope for nature and culture going forward into the future. My name is Sean Willett, and this has been The Red List. If you want to help contribute to rewilding efforts, seek out a local group that supports rewilding projects in your area, such as the Calgary Urban Coyote Project. Or just start something yourself. Rewilding can be as simple as planting flowers for pollinators or providing nest spots for bats and migrating birds. Every little bit helps. This show is brought to you by CJSW 90.9 FM, Calgary's independent radio station. You can find the show and many more CJSW podcasts on iTunes, SoundCloud, and CJSW.com. Our theme song is Deuteronomy 210 by the Mountain Goats. Music for this episode was provided by Mike Todd, Jazzar, and Podington Bear. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, keep watching. <laughs>